Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of January 12th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Jefferson County nonprofits receive unexpected $350,000 in grants from Community First Foundation by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Court denies travel request for defendant in fatal hit and run case. Havila's arraignment continued to February 21st by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Internal investigation fails to find cause of December Jeffco-wide shelter-in-place order by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco transcript. City of Arvada extends micro-mobility pilot program through 2023. Shareable electric scooters sticking around while city team gathers data. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. January is Blood Donor Month, and donations are needed by Olivia Jewel Love for the Arvada Press and following up with various articles. Jefferson County nonprofits receive unexpected $350,000 in grants from Community First Foundation by Corinne Westman. Nonprofits across Jefferson County are starting 2023 with a little more money in the bank. Over the holiday season, Narvada-based Community First Foundation awarded 18 organizations $350,000 total in grants. The funds will go toward furthering art, science, and culture-based projects that promote civic engagement. Several recipients said the funds were a complete surprise. Nathan Ritchie of Golden History Museum and Park said grants like this typically have a very involved application process. However, the museum didn't apply for it. Instead, CFF reached out to the museum based on other grant applications. This never happens in the grant world, Center for the Arts Evergreen's Lisa Nirenberg said. Lakewood Arts Council's Dorothy Lessam described how she and other colleagues looked at each other and thought, is this real, when they first heard about it. Community First Foundation confirmed the grants ranged from $700 to $30,000. It partnered with the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District to identify Jeffco nonprofits actively working to increase inclusivity in the county. SCFD shared grant applications it had received, and CFF worked quickly to award the grants before January 1st. The information we needed was already in the grant application nonprofits submitted to SCFD. Jamie Aguilar, Program Officer for Community First Foundation, said in a December 23rd press release. Now we can support civic engagement through diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in our community without the added burden for nonprofits to submit a new grant application, end quote. For instance, the Golden History Museum received $26,000 toward its work with indigenous communities. It recently completed an American Indian ethnography, mainly focused on Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute people's histories. The museum wants to use the ethnography as a, quote, scaffold to build upon, and not a loan project, Ritchie stated. He hoped to use the grant to bring tribal leaders to Golden for a site consultation visit and perhaps start an ethnobotanical garden. This means a great deal to us, Ritchie said of the funding. It's an investment to continue doing that work. It's a much larger commitment that we're making in Golden to elevate indigenous voices and communities. Meanwhile, the Lakewood Arts Council and Center for the Arts Evergreen both plan to use the grant funds for educational programming. The two received $13,000 and $30,000 respectively. It was the perfect way to end the year, Nirenberg said. Lessam felt similarly 
describing how the Lakewood Arts Council just moved into the 40 West Arts Hub, which is across the parking lot from its former location next to Casa Bonita. Thus, the grants will be a major boost as the organization tries to revamp its educational programming since the move, she described. It's hoping to partner with Denver and Jeffco teachers to provide art activities, supplies, and training for students of all ages. The studio also offers exhibit space for local students, and the grants will help continue that effort, Lessam added. We're thrilled to put the funds to good use, she continued. We're hoping to reach out into the community and do some good. Community First Foundation grant recipients. 40 West Arts, Apex Arts and Humanities Agency, Arvada Center for the Arts and Humanities, Benchmark Theater, Center for the Arts Evergreen, Colorado Cord Company of the Denver Mountaineers Barbershoppers, Colorado Environmental Film Festival, Colorado Folk Arts Fest Council, Denver Audubon, Evergreen Players, Filipino American Community of Colorado, Foothills Art Center, Foothills Park and Recreation District, Arts and Events, Golden History Museum and Park, Lakewood Arts Council, Miners Alley Playhouse, Tesoro Foundation, and the Venue Theater. Court denies travel request for defendant in fatal hit-and-run case. Avila's arraignment continued to February 21st by Corinne Westerman. Ernesto Avila, the man arrested as an accessory in the fatal hit-and-run outside a golden bar, has had his arraignment continued to February 21st. The court also denied Avila's request to travel to Puerto Rico to visit family. Avila, 25, and Ruben Marquez, 29, were arrested on October 9th after Marquez reportedly drove Avila's truck into a crowd of people outside the Rock Rest Lodge. One man was killed, and several others were injured. The district attorney's office has filed 17 charges against Marquez, including first-degree murder, vehicular homicide, and multiple assault charges. He's scheduled for a preliminary hearing February 3rd. Avila, the truck's owner, was believed to be a passenger during the incident outside the rock rest. He's been charged with one felony count of accessory to a crime. He appeared in court on bond January 9th for a scheduled arraignment. However, his defense attorney asked for a continuance to allow more time for negotiations with the district attorney's office. Judge Lindsay Van Gilder granted it, saying, quote, I understand the discovery in the case is voluminous. Avila is expected to enter a plea 3.30 p.m. February 21st. During the January 9th hearing, the DA's office also raised objections to Avila's request to travel to Puerto Rico to visit family. The prosecutor described how the victims and their families were opposed to Avila traveling, given what they've suffered since October 9th. Van Gilder also emphasized the serious allegations in the case and denied Avila's travel request, saying, quote, The court hasn't heard anything today that indicates travel to Puerto Rico is necessary. The October 9th Incident the arrest affidavits, affidavits for Marquez and Avila describe how the two and another man rode together in Avila's truck to the Rock Rest Lodge on October 8th. They had several mixed drinks throughout the night and reportedly talked to another group, quote, about gang issues. Accounts vary on whether the discussion was light banter or more contentious. Around 1.30 a.m. October 9th, a verbal confrontation between Marquez's group and the other group outside reportedly escalated into a fight. Witnesses described a man matching Marquez's description as getting into Avila's truck, white truck, and driving it into the crowd, with one witness telling investigators, quote, the way he swerved into people was on purpose. Several Rockrest patrons employees and employees were injured, and 26-year-old Adrian Ponce was killed. 
of those who were injured. Four were transported to the hospital, including two bar employees. All were expected to make full recoveries, JCSO stated on October 10th. JCSO also stated on October 10th that investigators hadn't confirmed whether it was a gang-motivated crime, and they didn't believe any of the parties involved knew each other before their encounter at Rock Rest Lodge. Golden High School asks for community's help with annual food drive. Boys basketball team hoping to collect 3,000 items by Corinne Westerman. The Golden High School boys basketball team is hoping to donate 3,000 items for its 2023 Jamie Wiggins food drive and is asking for community members help to reach that goal. The annual food drive honors Jamie Wiggins, a Jefferson County teacher and GHS basketball parent who died in 2018. The food drive runs through January 18th when the basketball team hosts Wheat Ridge High School at 7 p.m. Community members can bring food items to the January 18th home game or donate them at GHS during school hours between now and January 18th. All items will be donated to B. Golden, B-G-O-L-D-N, formerly known as the Golden Backpacker Backpack Program, which supports local children and families experiencing food insecurity. According to Tara Deegan-Young, a player's grandmother who's helping the team organize the annual food drive, the need is greater than ever this year. Deegan Young has been involved with B. Golden since 2008. Because the price of groceries continues to rise with the holidays now over, she's hoping the community will help the team meet its goal over the next two weeks. Last year, the team collected 2,700 items, totaling about $1,250 and weighing about 455 pounds, Deegan Young explained. This year's goal of 3,000 items will provide Golden Children with snacks during the school day and meals for their families. The greatest items of need for the pantry include cooking oil, peanut butter, cereal, canned tomatoes, canned fruit, canned tuna, and canned chicken. Additionally, Bee Golden also needs individually wrapped snack items such as fruit snacks, goldfish crackers, and pretzels. Items shouldn't include nuts. Items can be donated between 3.45 and 8.15 p.m. January 18th during the GHS basketball game. People can also donate items at GHS during school hours before January 18th. City of Arvada extends micro-mobility pilot program through 2023. Shareable electric scooters sticking around while city team gathers data. By Riley Dunn. Shareable micro-mobility vehicles are sticking around Arvada for at least the next year. The City of Arvada extended its micro-mobility pilot program, which began with bird scooters coming to town in 2022 for the rest of 2023. The extended program will include changes to the vehicle service area, restricted to one mile around each G-Line stop in the first iteration, and flexibility for vendors to adjust e-bike and e-scooter numbers in their fleet, since the city has not seen e-bikes mobilized yet. Arvada's Manager of Mobility and Planning Innovation, John Feruzzi, said at the end of the year, the city team will make a presentation to city council containing data collected by Feruzzi's team and a public survey. At that point, Director of Public Works Jacqueline Rhodes will decide the future of micromobility in Arvada. The pilot program allows for a maximum of two vendors to operate within city limits. Feruzzi said that Bird is intending to continue with the program and is in the process of updating their permits. Feruzzi added that Lime, an other popular e-bike and e-scooter vendor, has begun an application to operate in Arvada. Peruzzi said the city team will gauge feedback from vendors to decide how to expand the service area. Quote, We're going to geographically expand the areas incrementally to see if there's demand from the public and what the usage looks like, Peruzzi said. And if there 
are areas where there are where there's demand for e-bikes, e-scooters, or there's less demand, we're going to build that boundary based on what that looks like. There has been a desire to extend the micromobility program toward the central and western part of Arvada, Firuzi continued. So that's going to be kind of our focus outside of the transit areas to see what the demand looks like. Peruzzi said that part of the impetus for expanding the coverage area is that data shows the scooters are not being used for their intended purpose of supplying last-mile transportation to G-Line stops. Quote, we had over 10,000 trips in 2022, Peruzzi said, and a lot of those trips were short trips, just about a mile away from where the scooter was picked up, and a lot of them were to different destinations within neighborhoods, but they didn't necessarily correlate with transit stations. We had made an assumption that people would use these to catch the G-Line. We didn't see that as much activity on that front. Peruzzi also acknowledged that there have been concerns with improper scooter parking. He explained that there will be an audit system in place for city team members to let vendors know about observed misuse of scooters and that repeated parking infractions from the same account will result in monetary penalties of a ban or a ban from the ride-sharing app. Internal investigation fails to find cause of December Jeffco-wide shelter-in-place order by Andrew Fraley. Last month, Jefferson County sent out an emergency shelter-in-place order meant for a small number of Jeffco residents. Instead, it was sent to most of the county, and the county still doesn't know why. According to a press release from Jeffco 911, Jeffco's communication authority, Human Error, was ruled out. Rave Mobile Safety, which provides the infrastructure for sending out the alerts, was unable to replicate the situation causing the alert being distributed too wide, according to the press release. The internal investigation found that the filter meant to limit the amount of residents that received the alert was not applied, but again, for unknown reasons. The press release continues that Jeffco, Jeffcom 911 has transmitted 20 emergency alerts since the incident and has had no issues with any of them. It continues that, quote, Jeffcom 911 has implemented additional administrative oversight measures when administering emergency notifications as further precaution. Residents of Jeffco can sign up to receive these emergency alerts at jeffcom911.org. January's Blood Donor Month and Donations Are Needed by Olivia Jewel Love. According to the American Red Cross, the winter months are the most difficult months to collect blood donations, which is why January has been designated as National Blood Donor Month. The American Red Cross, America's Blood Centers, and the Association for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies are encouraging people to schedule appointments to donate blood in 2023. Emily Cooper a public health nurse in Clear Creek County explained that the need for blood is constant and vital in the healthcare industry. Anyone can need blood at any time, she said. People need blood transfusions for a variety of medical conditions, including acute or chronic illnesses. Cooper said long-term illnesses like cancer or sickle cell disease can require frequent transfusions, and people in accidents needing surgery can require emergent transfusions. Cooper also explained that there are different types of blood donations, including whole blood, power red, platelets, and plasma donations. Information on the different types of donations can be found on the American Red Cross website. Quote, here is a New Year's resolution we should all make. Become a regular blood donor in 2023 and start now as we mark National Blood Donor Month, said Deborah Ben Avram. Chief Executive Officer, AABB, in a press release. Lakewood Day Work Program to Bring Transitional Jobs and Services to the Unhoused. 
by Andrew Fraley. It's estimated by Jefferson County that about 500 people were experiencing homelessness last year in the county on a single night, with Lakewood being the most populous city in the county. Beginning early this year, the city will start a program to bring transitional jobs to these people and help them find more permanent ones. The city received almost $230,000 in funding from the Community First Foundation to help start a day work program that will not only pay unhoused people by the day to help with city cleanup efforts, but will provide wraparound services such as meals, transportation to job sites, showers, laundry, and more. On the City Council, one of our main goals is homelessness, and this really punches through not only for providing jobs, job assistance, job training, dignity, all these things that come with the program, but also some fatigue within the community about the trash and some of the things they're seeing along our major corridors, Lakewood Mayor Adam Paul said. So I really thought this could be a win-win. The program will be operated by Bayod, a company that has already run similar programs in Adams County and Aurora. Running the day-to-day -day operations such as accounting and taxes for the wages, as well as the job training, recruitment, and other services. According to Frank Cordova, Associate Director of DayWorks Programs at Bayod, the company will provide transportation to and from each work site via their Lakewood office on Dover Street. Work would be six hours a day, three days a week, with wages being $85 paid cash daily, or about $14.16 per hour, and include breakfast and lunch. Laundry and shower services also would be available. These jobs are likely to be park cleanup and drainage clearing, among other similar tasks for the Parks and Recreation Department, and possibly the library system, according to Cordova. The program is designed to be 10 weeks long for participants, with a six-person crew rotating out with a six- to ten-person wait list as people finish or leave the program. First come, first serve. The program is expected to serve 75 people in its entirety. The services from Bayod will include creating individual plans for employment with each person in the program, and Cordova said it will start while people are on the wait list. This consists of asking people about their current situation, interests, and dream jobs, teaching job readiness skills such as resume writing and running mock interviews, and guidance through hiring processes for other agencies and more permanent jobs. Quote, within that 10-week period, based on the programming they do at the end of their workday, we're hoping they'll have permanent employment, said Cordova, and any of the benefits that they are seeking would be in place by the end of that 10-week period. The navigation services such as housing referrals and help with benefit applications would also continue after their employment period with the program. Cordova also pointed out that Bayard has begun outreach already, attending monthly community court dates meant for unhoused people, as well as being reached out to by parole officers in Lakewood. This is not the first attempt with a day work program, though. A small 90-day pilot program with only a handful of workers was operating through the West Colfax Business Improvement District. Cordova said the broader Lakewood program will absorb it. Bayot also runs a day work program in Denver and Adams County. Paul pointed to a change in priorities with the current council as a reason the program has started to come to fruition after raising it as a possibility at the annual Metro Mayor's Caucus two years ago. When this new group came on last November and we had our first retreat, we were really able to push homelessness to the top, he said. I wouldn't say there was a huge barrier, but more of an understanding that this is the real deal, and we need to be doing a lot of different things in this area, arena. He also highlighted the grant, form, the grant from Community First as making the program a lot easier to start, as budgeting through the city alone for nearly $250,000 would have taken a lot longer, he said. Quote, 
I believe that single-handedly this will provide so much opportunity for our community, Paul said. It's going to be so good, not only for the unhoused, but all of our residents. Polis urges incentives for electric cars, mowers, e-bikes. Governor wants tax credits to make purchases cheaper. By Sam Brash, Colorado Public Radio. Governor Jared Polis is pushing lawmakers to make it even cheaper for Colorado residents to buy an electric car, electric bike, or electric lawnmower. The governor announced the plan as an amendment to his 2023-2024 budget proposal on January 3rd. Ahead of the upcoming legislative session, he now wants legislators to approve $120 million in new tax credits to nudge the public to buy products that combat climate change and air pollution. Quote, this is for Colorado to get a head start to help more people afford electric vehicles earlier and reduce the cost in Colorado, Polis said as a press, con press event at the governor's mansion. Polis' request comes as lawmakers prepare to manage a tricky budget in the upcoming legislative session. State economists have warned about the possibility of a recession which could throw off Colorado's already complicated plans for spending and taxpayer refunds. During his press conference, Polis appeared to try to dispel any concerns about further depleting state coffers with a new set of rebates. This is not the general fund. This is tax credits, Polis said. The proposed incentive package is the latest example of Polis' carrot-heavy approach to climate policy, Will Tour, the executive director of the Colorado Energy Office and the chief architect of the state's climate efforts, said the proposed budget amendments would expand the state tax credit for electric vehicles from $2,000 to $5,000. Under the proposal, anyone who buys an e-bike would also be eligible for a $500 rebate, while low-income residents could receive a $1,000 discount. Tour said the new tax credits would also cover 30% of the cost of new electric lawn and garden equipment. Quote, this package is an important complement to existing policy and federal initiatives, incentives that would help supercharge climate action and progress on clean air in Colorado, Tour said. I would anticipate it's going to be pretty attractive to many members of the legislature. Tour said the plan is a direct response to the Inflation Reduction Act, which Congress approved last year, with an estimated $370 billion in spending for new climate programs. The new law renewed a $7,500 federal EV tax credit, but added a long list of restrictions. Starting around March, a buyer can get half the full credit if a vehicle has a battery with at least 40% of minerals from the United States or its trade partners. The other half is only available if 50% of the battery components are made in North America. Those rules could exclude many EV models. To account for the new policies, many automakers have announced plans to shift supply chains and build new factories in the U.S., but it could take years for their vehicles to qualify for the federal discounts. By expanding the state tax credit, Tour said the state could avoid a slowdown in Colorado's electric car market. Almost 70,000 EVs are already on the road, according to a Colorado Energy Office dashboard. Polis has set a goal to have 940,000 EVs on Colorado roads by 2030. To reach those targets, Colorado has split from electric vehicle strategies in California. Last year, the state's Air Resources Board approved new vehicle regulations, which included a ban on the sale of new gas-powered vehicles starting in 2035. Other deep blue states are in the process of adopting the same rules. Meanwhile, the Polis administration has proposed a modified version of the same regulations. While it includes many of California's aggressive electric vehicle sales targets, it drops the 2035 ban. Other pieces of the proposed Colorado tax rebate package would incentivize the use of clean hydrogen, community geothermal heating projects, and sustainable aviation fuel. 
It follows a bill Polis signed last year allocating more than $110 million for programs to improve local air quality. That included a two-year e-bike incentive program, which the state plans to launch later this year. Tour said the new proposal aims to make sure Colorado continues to offer e-bike discounts even after the program expires. He said that's especially important following the success of Denver's e-bike rebate program, which helped more than 4,000 residents buy a new two-wheeled electric vehicle in less than a year. Quote, People love them, and there's demand for them. And so we will be proposing an ongoing e-bike tax credit as a part of the clean transportation package, Tour said. This story is from CPR News, a nonprofit news source used by permission. For more and to support Colorado Public Radio, visit CPR.org. Wildfire risk is so high, some homeowners can't get insured. Last resort coverage considered. By Jesse Paul and Olivia Prinzel, the Colorado Sun. State lawmakers are preparing to introduce a bill in the legislature that would create a quasi-governmental program offering basic home insurance to the growing number of Colorado homeowners who say they can't get coverage from private companies because the risk of wildfire is growing. The Colorado Division of Insurance has fielded dozens of calls and emails, many of them since August, from Coloradans who say they have been turned down by private home insurers. The situation presents the specter of financial calamity for people whose homes are their primary asset and for communities that lean on real estate as an economic engine. Without home insurance, it's impossible to secure a mortgage, which dramatically limits who can buy or sell a home. There's also immense financial risk in owning a property without insurance coverage. The problem is especially acute in high country communities, but Coloradans who live on the front range, particularly those near where the Marshall Fire destroyed more than 1,000 homes in December 2021, are also reporting problems securing coverage for their properties. The Marshall Fire, one year later. It has been one year since the Marshall Fire destroyed hundreds of houses and businesses in parts of Louisville, Superior, and Boulder County. One year of sorting through what was lost. One year of trying to create a new normal. And one year of making a new home. We can see the handwriting on the wall that we're starting to have a problem, said State Representative Judy Amobile a bolder Democrat who is taking the lead on the prospective legislation, which is expected to be introduced at the Capitol after the legislature convenes, reconvenes next month for its 2023 lawmaking term. Colorado is one of a few states that do not have a so-called home insurer of last resort or fair plan created by the government. Michael Conway, Colorado's insurance commissioner, said that's because Colorado hasn't needed one until now. Colorado's three largest wildfires by acreage all happened in 2020. And before that, the 2012 Waldo Canyon Fire and 2013 Black Forest Fire, both in El Paso County, each destroyed hundreds of homes. Then came the Marshall Fire, Colorado's most destructive in terms of the number of homes destroyed. More than $2 billion in insurance claims are expected to be filed in connection with the Marshall Fire. We just haven't had natural disasters of the magnitude of states like the Gulf Coast states in particular, Conway told the Colorado Sun. It was probably a year and a half ago that I was in front of one of the insurance committees at the state legislature and they asked if we had homeowners insurance. Availability pro problems in the state that I was worried about, and I honestly could say at that point that no, we didn't. We didn't have issues. But late in the summer, his office started to hear complaints from homeowners that they couldn't get their properties insured. What really sounded the alarm was when the independent insurance agents started telling state regulators they couldn't find coverage for their clients. 
If they can find coverage, it can sometimes be outrageously expensive. Jim Kinzer, an insurance broker in Steamboat Springs, told The Sun about a single-family home in Route County that was previously insured for an annual premium between $3,000 to $4,000. When a new owner bought the property over the summer and planned to remodel the house, no insurance company would write them a homeowner's, homeowner's policy until the house was renovated with fire-resistant materials and brush cleared from its perimeter. The home was uninsured for months in the meantime. In Pitkin County, home to Aspen, Kinzer said a homeowner's coverage was not renewed by their insurance company and no other carrier would provide coverage at any price. It's getting to be more and more difficult to find carriers who will say, yes, we'll take it, Kinzer said. And people need insurance. State Senator-elect Dylan Roberts, an Avon Democrat, said difficulty obtaining property insurance is, quote, the number one thing I'm hearing from my constituents. In the high country, where there's already a housing crisis, there are fears that homeowners' insurance problems and the rising costs could further limit the lack of affordable places to live. Conway says the legislature must act fast to prevent Coloradans from having to go without coverage. If the issues that we're seeing now aren't remedied by the private insurance market fairly expeditiously, we are going to have to set something up pretty quickly, he said. But the private insurance industry is urging caution, saying that if Colorado acts too fast and makes mistakes, insurance companies may pull out of the states altogether. Stakes are very high, said Carol Walker, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association, an industry trade group. It just feels like we're rushing to the solution without adequately studying it. If there is going to be a fair plan or at last resort legislation this year, let's make sure we're basing it on really being a very targeted solution at a targeted problem. Walker said that anecdotes alone shouldn't drive the legislature. Quote, we certainly have to understand what our gaps are and what our problems are. And given the high stakes... The debate over a state-run or state-created property insurance program could be one of the most technically complicated and politically heated policy battles at the Colorado Capitol in 2023. How it works in other states. State-run or state-created insurers of last resort started cropping up in the 1960s in coastal and urban areas where property owners faced high risks from riots, fires, and hurricanes and couldn't get traditional companies from private insurance companies, said Mark Friedlander, a spokesman for the Insurance Information Institute, another insurance industry trade group. There are such programs in 32 states and the District of Columbia. While each operates differently, they generally fall into two groups, plans subsidized by taxpayers and plans funded by private insurers. The plans are often costlier and often offer less coverage than the average private insurance policy, Friedlander said. Quote, they typically do not include liability coverage, which is a component of a standard home insurance policy, he said. The purpose of the plans is simply to ensure that people can get some level of coverage, hence the insurer of last resort moniker. Florida's Citizens Property Insurance Corporation is the biggest state-managed property insurance program in the U.S. In August, the nonprofit funded by policyholders surpassed one million policies and became the largest property insurer in the state. Nearly 28 million people live in Florida. Homeowners are only eligible for coverage from the Citizens Property Insurance Corporation if they cannot get coverage from a Florida-authorized insurance company or if the premiums from a Florida-authorized insurance company are more than 20% higher than the premiums for comparable coverage from citizens. In California, homeowners can only get insurance under the state's fair plan if they can't get coverage from a private company after a diligent search. And homeowners must repeat that search annually. 
The policies offered under California's plan are handled by private insurers who operate in the state, who are required to cover a portion of fair plan policies equal to their share of normal policies in California. Quote, for, more, for most homeowners, the fair plan is a temporary safety net, here to support them until coverage offered by a traditional carrier becomes available, the fair plan website says. As of 2020, less than 3% of California residents were covered under the plan. The private insurance industry often points to the Citizens Property Insurance Corporation as an example of a state-run property insurance program gone wrong because of how many people left the private market to seek coverage from citizens. Insurance companies use customer premiums to create a pool of money from which they can pay out claims. Fewer customers means a smaller pool. Florida's legislature met for a special lawmaking term in December to tweak the program and set aside billions for initiatives aimed at bolstering the private insurance market. Quote, Google Florida and their plan, and it will be what not to do, Walker said. Conway said he is starting from the premise that a state-run or created property insurance program in Colorado should not compete with the private insurance market. Quotes, I think it's kind of a misnomer to call these programs an insurer of last resort, he said. It puts the idea in people's heads that it's going to actually be in a true insurance company. And they're really not. They're really kind of a safety net for people that are organized by their state governments in order to help them in a situation where they can't find homeowners insurance coverage. That may be cold comfort for Coloradans who are paying exorbitant costs for property insurance. Jim Noon is the former treasurer of the Buffalo Ridge Buffalo Village Condominium Complex Homeowners Association in Summit County. He thought a tree clearing near the 270-unit complex called a fire break that stopped a wildfire in 2018 would prevent the complex insurance rates from climbing too high. Earlier this year, the HOA accepted a $200,000 property insurance bid and paid the amount. Then, quote, three days into the coverage, they just said, never mind, and handed us the check back, Noon said. He said the insurance agent hadn't looked to see if the complex was in an area at risk for wildfire coverage before agreeing to provide coverage. Scrambling to find a new insurer, the HOA found a carrier that offered insurance for about $1 million. It covered only half of the total value of the complex if it burned to the ground, Noon said, and the policy didn't cover wind or water damage. Others are struggling to get the insurance they feel is adequate for their home. Tim Anderson, who lives in Steamboat Springs, spent nearly $1 million to build his 3,000-square-foot house in 2016, complete with custom brickwork and cabinets and a sauna. One insurance agent argued it would, be, it would cost $349,000 to rebuild his home, while another said it would cost $500,000. Quote, how is that possible? When I built this house five years ago, it cost me... 900, roughly $900,000, a million dollars. It's not possible the house can be rebuilt with $350,000. That's just laughable, Anderson said. Eventually, Anderson, who has worked as an insurance underwriter for 40 years, found a local agent who understood local building costs and insured his home at $1.8 million. You can find the insurance, he said. The problem is getting insurance to the proper value. We haven't settled on anything yet. Views on whether Colorado needs a government property insurance program have shifted rapidly. Governor Jared Polis, during a debate hosted by The Sun and CBS4 in October, said he wasn't sold on a state-run or created homeowners insurance program being a good idea for Colorado. His main priority, he said, is to reduce the risk of wildfires. Quote, there's proven technologies to do that, whether it's simply taking down trees and brush around your home, construction materials, especially in wildfire, wildland urban interface near open areas, he said. And if we do that successfully, we will be able to drive down, down insurance rates for every Coloradan.
Now Conway, a member of Polis' cabinet, has made the governor's administration intimately involved in the discussions over how to create an insurer of last resort in Colorado. There are signs Republicans in the legislature, who are traditionally opposed to government growth, won't necessarily fight the proposal. Quote, I do think it is an appropriate role for a government to have some kind of backstop, said State Senator-elect Mark Baisley, a Woodland Park Republican who represents an area west of Colorado Springs that's prone to wildfires. While I hate for the government to get any more involved than necessary in private industry, I think we do need to work pretty aggressively with insurance companies to get them to provide the coverage that people need. Baisley is separately working with Emmobile on underinsurance issues in Colorado. The conversations around how Colorado's state-run or state-created property insurance program would be formed are still in a relatively early stage. Quote, there's a lot of different ways to do it, and we haven't settled on anything yet, Emma Bale said. These policies are not going to be deluxe policies. It's going to be very bare bones. It's going to be limited coverage, and it's going to be expensive. She said Colorado lawmakers will look to other states as they draft Colorado's plan. There's good and bad parts to what they've done, Emmobile said, pointing to Florida and California. There has been talk of requiring homeowners to mitigate wildfire risk around their property as a prerequisite for getting insured under the state program. Conway said his office has already been having conversations with experts around the country. It's been decades since anybody has stood up a fair plan, he said. So finding people who have actually been, finding people who actually have useful knowledge has been a little bit difficult. Generally speaking, he said, startup costs have been funded by assessments or fees on private insurance companies. Conway said the assessments have been relatively small. Walker, with the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association, warned that any added cost for private insurers would likely be passed on to consumers. That means higher prices for people whose homes aren't necessarily facing wildfire risk. Quote, if you pay for this through reason reassessments or surcharges, those are all costs that are passed on, she said. Walker urged Colorado lawmakers to have caps on how much coverage the state property insurance plan would offer to make sure the program is financially sound. New Mexico, for instance, only, off, only covers residential properties for up to $250,000 and up to $1 million for commercial properties. We want to address problems that we have and not create problems that we don't have, she said. The Colorado legislature convenes for its 2023 lawmaking term January 9th. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Plant Lore, guest column by Bridget Blomquist. Lore is defined as the knowledge gained through tradition or anecdote passed down through the ages, generation to generation. The lore of plants has long been an integral part of humanity, influencing our religion, medicinal remedies, the food we eat, and even our behaviors. Our relationship with plants is primal. Our pre-scientific intuitions, suspicions, hopes, fears, and desires involve plants as tools to ensure survival and good fortune. Can you recall lore passed down to you by an older family member or trusted teacher like an apple a day keeps the doctor away or knock on wood? The first referring to a good health practice and the second to a superstition. Speaking of wood, elderberry lore stories describe this woody plant as having properties of protection from witches. Early European stories describe cutting the wood of elderberry plants or crafting an infant's crib made from its wood as unlucky. 
According to Brothers Grimm Fairy Tales, it is wise to keep a bouquet of elderflowers picked in midsummer on hand in case a devil wanders by. Burdock, sometimes called so soap root, was a favorite herb of Venus and therefore useful in love matters. A love charm prescribes to pick a burr off the burdock plant and name it after the one you love or fancy, then throw it against your clothing, and if it sticks, the object of your affection feels the same as you. If it does not stick, the person does not share your affection. Mullein is a commonly found plant in Denver that comes from the Greek word phlego, meaning set on fire. Accounts of the plant describe it as used as a wick to put into lamps to burn for light. The leaves were rolled and dried and used for wi as wicks for oil lamps and candles. Later, Europeans would dip mullein stalks in beef fat and burn them to frighten off evil spirits. Assigning a common name of Aaron's Rod, who used a long staff in the book of Exodus to overcome Pharaoh's evil sorcerers. Goldenrod tales are those of prosperity. Tales of finding goldenrod in the wild is a sign that buried treasure lay beneath. If it were to grow by a house door, then the inhabitants could expect great fortune. Artemisia species, or mugwort, have been used for its medicinal purposes throughout the centuries and all over the world. Herbalists claim the Artemisia species were an excellent comfort for the brain. Crushing its leaves and inhaling its aromatic fragrance is said to have a calming effect. One of my personal plant lore stories comes from growing up in Ohio, exploring the woods with other children. I learned Queen Anne, Queen's Anne's lace was picked to adorn the hair of women in the olden days, made popular by Queen Anne. Women also collected these flowers on their wedding day to be sewed onto the dress for extra beauty and embellishment as lace. Bridget Blomquist is the Associate Director of Horticulture for the Denver Botanic Gardens. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.